0: Hi, welcome to Ed and Memorial Day weekend service. I'm Pastor Bob. We're actually doing this taping a week before, and it's kind of rainy and cold, and we've got kind of a fireside chat here, so I hope you grab a cup of coffee. We're just going to talk for a little bit about everything that's going on. I've become concerned about the possibility, what do we do when God doesn't make any sense in what he's doing? It doesn't fit in any frame of reference that we normally work with. Or think about. And it seems to me if we look at scripture, we look at three people who have kind of three different responses to what God is doing when he talks to them and speaks to them about what's taking place in his plan of redemption. The first possibility is Jonah. Now we all know the story of Jonah. Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh. He runs away. But the story is more complex than that because even though he Uh, is belched up on the seashore by this great fish and he goes to Nineveh and they repent, he is still upset with God because he doesn't want God to forgive these people. And we read these words because uh, in Jonah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. The reality is what Jonah was saying is, God, I don't understand this, and I don't care, and I don't want to listen to whatever it is you're doing with the Ninevites. Here's one of the struggles we have with this, is that sometimes God is doing something and we don't want to hear. We don't even take the time to talk to him. In these two verses, Jonah just simply runs away. He doesn't even take time to ask God what he's doing, because he's fearful of what God's going to do. God's going to save these people, cause them to repent through his preaching, and he doesn't want anything to do with that. He doesn't either talk or listen to God. And sometimes when we're looking at these things that are going on in our lives right now, we do not either take the time to either speak to God or ask him what it is he might be doing. The reality was Jonah had nothing to do with God's desire for the lost. We have to be careful that we don't lose the urgency of the mission. To meet people... Because that is God's first love. And maybe in this crisis, what he's trying to remind us of is that he cares about people. Susan and I, the first week, kind of took up a prayer walk. And one of the great things I've seen come out of the pandemic is I've met neighbors I didn't, hadn't met. Some of them have been there three, four years, maybe even longer. But now I'm connecting with them and sharing with them. And I'm reminded that God is concerned about the lost in a pandemic such as we're going through we can respond like jonah and say i don't care i don't want anything to do with what you're doing just leave me alone in fact i'm not certain if we if this is possible but if there's a prophet maybe who will not be in heaven it might be jonah because he simply refused to do what god asked him to do and then there's another individual saul not saul who was king in israel but saul who became the apostle paul And I'm going to talk a little bit about this one because this is the one I think is so close to my heart, where we're at right now. And that was if Paul, or Saul, before he became Paul, simply did not understand and ignored what the Word of God had to say. Listen to these words by Paul, from Paul at that time about his former life as Saul, written for us in Philippians chapter three, verses four through six. If anyone else thinks he has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Faultless. Each of those references that Paul makes is very significant because we need to remember Paul was also a Roman citizen with all the joys and the privileges that came with being that kind of an individual. And yet he hones in on the fact that he is a Jew, a first-class Jew, that he is doing all the things that are required. He was committed to being the best possible Jew he could be for God. His status as an elite Jew meant more to him than his Roman citizenship. And although he was born in Tarsus, which made him a free citizen in Rome by being born there, he went to Israel for his education. He tells us that he learned and grew up in, in Jerusalem under the feet of the leading Pharisee of the day, Gamaliel. He learned the law. He learned the custom. He was, among Jews, the leading Jew, passionate about what he was doing, a student thoroughly trained in Jewish law and customs. As a young man, Saul became very jealous about honoring God. He was a jealous kind of... He wanted God to be honored and glorified. And for his understanding, the best possible way to do that would be to persecute the people of the way to bring them, as he says in, in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. He centered his persecution on them, followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting men and women and throwing them into prison. I have to ask myself, why did Saul, before he became Paul, so misunderstand the gospel of the new Old Testament? The gospel of the Old Testament was very clear. It stated over and over again that the nation of Israel's purpose was not to become elite, even though they were chosen by God, his people, but so that through them the world would come to know him, that they would, they, the world would see what God was doing with this nation, his blessings in their life, and they would come to worship this God of the Jews. But he had lost all sight of that. For him, it was about being Jewish above all else. An elite group of Jews known as a Pharisee and the best possible Pharisee he could be. Why did that happen? Why did he pervert that gospel? I can think of at least three reasons. I'll list them quickly. Then I want to talk about how they might affect our personal life as we look at what God is doing Three reasons come to mind why this happened to Saul. He grew up in a culture committed to Jewish elitism. They believed they were the chosen people of God, which is right, but to the exclusion of all other people. They thought they had an inside road and no matter what happened, God would bless them. From birth, second, Saul was a born fanatical, jealous individual for, in terms of his temperament. He wanted to honor God. That didn't change. In fact, later when he was the Apostle Paul, he said, zeal is good as long as it's for the right thing. So he has this cultural background of elitism. He has a personal temperament, which is a, almost a frenzied kind of jealousy for the honor of God. And then second, he, like you and me, and no other person except Jesus, We're born with a fallen, broken, and sinful nature. It predisposes us, that sinful nature, to pride and a sense of self-centered entitlement. It's about me. And the reason I wanted to stop there for a minute and look at Saul before I became Paul was that I must be careful to realize that I was born with that kind of a A cultural bias. I grew up, I was born in 1950, so I'll be 70 this year. But in 1950, the United States of America had just come out of two world wars and a depression. They had helped militarily to defeat um, the enemy in two different world wars. And in 1950, the feeling of America was, everybody should be like us. Because we're the best. And I brought into the cult my culture this understanding of the scripture. It was to, to be a Christian was to be, in fact, a good American. Because we were the best. Everyone wanted to be us, or at least they should have wanted to be us. And then you bring into it my temperament in, in understanding the scriptures. My temperament is, I'm rebellious by nature. Not just generically like other people, because we all are. But my temperament is, I hate authority. Let me tell you two quick stories. I was always good at having a rebellious nature, but being fairly able to hide it from people. But it came out. In 1968, when I finished high school... Uh, my mother um, wanted a senior picture. and In those days, you didn't get to take a senior picture except at school. You didn't have a photographer do it. They signed it up, set it up for school. When, we, when you'd be at school, that senior picture was taken. And I knew my mother wanted a picture of me. In fact, it hung in the hallway at home for 42 years until she passed. But I was told that I had to wear a white shirt, and a tie and a suit coat, which I did for my mother's sake. But what you can't see from the picture down, waist down in my picture, is that my white shirt was tucked into gym shorts and had sandals on my feet. And I went to school that way. And then a few years later, I found myself at Bethel Seminary going to school, working on a master's degree in ancient Near Eastern history and Old Testament literature. And I discovered an unspoken rule. You are clean shaven and your hair is above your ears. And as soon as I recognized that unspoken rule, I grew a beard and let my hair grow down almost to my shoulders. I am by nature a rebellious person. The staff can tell you I almost went ballistic when we were told we had to stay at home by the government. I couldn't deal with it. And then you couple with that with the fact that I'm already a sinner. Combine all of those things together, a culture that tells me I'm the best, a rebellious nature at heart, and a sinful soul. And I take the good news of Jesus Christ, mingle it with my culture, mingle it with my temperament, mingle it with my brokenness, and, and I rebel, and I change the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now, one of my struggles is I feel like we have a culture that worships at the feet of health, safety, and above all, take no risks. And this isn't brand new. This has been coming for a long time. Many of you know I have children who have gone into various forms of ministry or grandchildren. And my first child that went into admissions, I had people here at church and other church people tell me God would never call my children to that kind of work because it was too dangerous. And I had a child who went into ministry and I had people come and say, that person's gifted. If they use their gifts somewhere else they can make a lot more money life would be a lot more comfortable and they could have the great things that Americans want. Then I had a grandchild who who decided he might work with youth and with um, camp and again, people said, why would he do that? He'll never make a very good living. He'll never be able to have a house. Because we live with this sins that being an American and our entitlement to be safe and never risking and, and being happy is all that the gospel is really about. And here's my long-term fear about what we're going through right now. From It isn't social distancing, although I hate it. It's the fact that when we worship at the feet of safety and security and we don't take risks what will happen in five to ten years from now when we try to tell our children god may be calling you to missions and it may cost you your health it may cost you um, not having the things that americans are used to and they say well what do you mean all, all along, I've been told the most important thing is to be safe and happy and secure. And I'm, I'm concerned that we as a church in America may forfeit and five to ten years from now will have no say in world missions because we've abdicated our role in order to remain safe and secure. Jesus warned us in Mark chapter seven, verses seven through eight with these words. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to the traditions of men. In our culture of health, safety, and above all, no risks. We've distorted, distorted, I'm afraid, the scripture many times. We've made the good news American, but we have not made it biblical. And so, like Paul, we misunderstand and we ignore what the Bible actually says and why, when God doesn't make sense, we wonder how come we don't get it or why we're scared. Maybe we've treated the scriptures with misunderstanding and fear and ignorance because of who we are as a people. But there's another one that I want to hone in on, another response that I think truly fits us and what I hope I would respond to when things happen that make no sense to me in this world. It's another Old Testament prophet but whose response to what God is doing is very different. It's Habakkuk. Let me just again review the story quickly with you in these few minutes. I want to remind you that the story begins in that book with the statement that he's saying to God, your people are wicked. You need to punish them and straighten them out. And God says, you're right. They are. And in fact, Tobacco, what I'm going to do is bring the Assyrian army here, and they're going to burn down my temple, and they're going to kill my people in the streets, men, women, and children. They're going to be trampled under by horses, and I'm going to take the rest of them into captivity into Babylon because of their sin. And Habakkuk goes, wait, God, that's, that's a little too severe. Why would you use a more wicked people to punish a less wicked people? And God stops and says, yeah, Habakkuk, but that's what I'm going to do. That's my plan, and I'm going to do it. He's going, and that, that doesn't make any sense. And then we read these words at the end of that little book that's only three chapters long. These words, let me read them to you and then comment on them as well. This will be short today, and I hope you're okay with that. But I wanted to hear my heart during this time. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, we read these words. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me feel my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I think here, this little vignette of three chapters, we see the possible response we can have to God when we're looking and say, this makes no sense, God. Why are you doing this? This is way out beyond what should be. There is these words. First, I want to let you know it's okay to tremble. Verse 16a again said this in chapter 3. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. He was afraid. He was afraid. God, I don't I God, I understand what you're going to do, but I am afraid. I'm scared. I trembled. You ever been so scared that your lips quivered and your heart pounded and you felt like your legs were gonna give up? That's exactly how the prophet felt. I know some of you are gonna say, what about the verses where? We're told not to fear, but if you take those verses and you look at them, you'll see that God is saying to us, "Don't fear about the circumstances you can't control. Don't fear. Don't fear um, things you think might happen when, when by worrying you can't even add a day to your life or turn your hair gray. I've tried, as you can see. Um, simply saying." Hey, don't be afraid. Sometimes doesn't do it. And the reason I think it can be okay in this case to tremble, because when God says he's going to do something, it's going to happen that way. I don't understand. Many of us said that over the last two months. It's not fair. You have no right to do that, God. I deserve something better. I deserve to be healthy. I deserve to be carefree. I deserve not to have to risk what I'm going through and and possibly become sick. And God says, but that's not the plan I have. And when he says that, it's okay to tremble because he's doing something that we just cannot wrap our heads around. You ever feel like trembling the last month? Let me say to you, It doesn't mean you're less of a believer. It can be okay to be afraid because God is doing something we can't see. God is moving in ways that are new to us and we don't understand. And then the prophet says these important words that are so important for us. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, on the pandemic invading us, The prophet would have to wait. He probably wasn't even alive. Seventy years for God to bring that other nation to invade and punish the nation that was coming to destroy Israel. It seems in God's economy that there's always a wait. A wait. Easter weekend is... Good Friday, when Jesus is crucified and he gives himself up for us. And we celebrate Sunday when he rises from the dead. But there is Saturday. There's a wait time. And many of us struggle in the wait. In fact, I've become convinced as I talk with people and over my years of ministry now, that emotional and mental health, health is either won or lost in the wait. God's ways, in fact, are different. I see the temporal. God sees the big picture. It is true of the words we quote so often out of Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. You see, God's goals are not my goals. are not very often, anyway. God's thinking is different than my thinking. That's the reality of the whole situation. I think differently than he does. Otherwise, why could he say this to us in Psalm 116, verse 15? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. You see, until I come to terms with the fact that I am spiritually dead without Christ, and physically I, will, I am dead already, I can never truly face life and live. I'm convinced that when we come face-to-face with our own mortality on a physical and spiritual level, then we can begin to live and face life as it really is with its uncertainties and unpredictability. I say this frequently, especially since September 11th, 2001 when the towers went down because no one went there thinking that would be their last day. You cannot choose how you will die, but God gives us a bigger privilege. He lets us choose how we will live. The weight is where we grow. And then the last thing that he says, which is so true, is that he is going to trust. Verse 17 through 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes in the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. During this time, and in the days yet ahead, even though, quote, we're kind of getting back to normal, what do we do when there's no job? What do we do when we can't be with family? Isolation is the most horrible of feelings. When there are no ventilators in the hospital, no disinfecting wipes, when there's no meat in the store, when there is a virus, there is perhaps a tumor. There are perhaps a divorce you did not want. There is an addiction to a family member that you cannot account for and you cannot cure. Yet I will trust. People ask me this all the time. Is the virus because of our evil? Because, is it from Satan Or is this God's punishment on us? And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And I actually think it's kind of a mute question. God is in control. Nothing happens without his permission. God is moving. And my choice is how I can respond. When God makes no sense, I hope I will respond like the prophet Habakkuk. When I hear, maybe I'll tremble at what he's doing because it seems unfair. It's unthinkable, unfathomable. I need to wait and let him change me and then trust. Habakkuk said what I I believe is true and what I hope will be my response. I understand God, but I'm afraid. I tremble, I wait, and I trust. We can't turn the good news of the gospel into a false American dream to live without any tension, always being safe, never taking risks, because the gospel is about risk. God came to save the broken. May God give us grace over this Memorial Day weekend to enjoy the gifts he's given to us, but to remember that he's doing something. And when I don't doesn't make sense, when I don't know what to do, I don't want to be like Jonah and not talk to him and run and say, I want nothing to do with what you're doing. I don't want to be like Saul who misunderstood and ignored the real out tr- truths of the gospel. I'm hoping I will respond like Habakkuk. God, I'm afraid. Help me to wait patiently. And help me above all to trust. Have a great day and thanks for being with me for this chat. May God do something great in your life as together we wait this out.